Two Sunday nights ago on 10-10-10, Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain celebrated 30 years of God's faithfulness. It was a wonderful day. In fact, it turned out to be a family reunion. People we hadn't seen for years showed up for the celebration. Relationships were renewed. God's miracles were remembered. We ate chili, but it was a day of warmth and joy and testimonies to God's greatness. Well, tonight's text also begins with a reunion. Jesus is now headed from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And to prepare the way, he has sent out 35 pairs of preachers. 70 disciples have been sent out now in Jesus' name. We're not sure how long they were gone, maybe for days or weeks or months. But when they returned, all they could talk about was the wonderful works of God. That's where we pick it up, Luke chapter 10, verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. These men were so excited. They had arm wrestled with demons and won. They had tag team with God to work miracles. Here they come back bringing their press clippings with them. But in the next two verses, Jesus clears up some misconceptions. Verse 19, behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Here's their first lesson. Their success wasn't caused by their own power. No, demons fled because they went out in the authority that Jesus gave them. Understand the difference between power and authority. There is a petite little lady who's the crossing guard from the South Gwinnett parking lots to the school grounds. She's the one that stops the traffic so that the students can walk to class. Ford F-250 monster trucks stop for this lady. 18-wheeler tractor-trailer stop for this little bitty lady. Huge vehicles stop for this gal. And they do so not because of her power. She has no power up against these big vehicles. Why do they stop? They fear her authority. They could plow her over. But she's authorized by power greater than her own. You mess with this lady and you mess with the entire county police department. You see, this explains why a disciple can drive out a demon. No big, burly, gnarly demon is going to fear a spiritually petite and powerless and tiny disciple. But see, we have no power of our own. But the demons, they fear our authority. Indeed, they do. Jesus has authorized us to do business in his name. Jesus has our back. That's why the demons flee. But there's another misconception that Jesus straightens out. Verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You see, the 70 returned excited about what they had done for God. But Jesus says, that's no big deal. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What should have thrilled them was what God had done for them. See, here's the real miracle, that your names are written in heaven. You know, I've, I've attended churches that have this same problem. They're always talking about what they're doing for God, the miracles that they're working for God. But that's no big deal. We serve an all-powerful, miracle-working God. It's no surprise that he commands demons. What's shocking is that a holy God would pardon sinners like us. You see, the source of our joy should always be in what, not in what we do for God, but always in what God has done for us. Verse 21 tells us, In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. 
Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Notice, God reveals himself to those with childlike trust. You know, this is why both then and now, many of the theologians and scholars, they sit in darkness while the saints with simple faith walk in the light of God's love. Always remember, God reveals himself not to haughty minds, but to humble hearts. Verse 22 tells us, all these things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now here's a statement with some profound implications. Notice, Jesus is the sole gatekeeper to God. He says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And he who the Father, you know, reveals him. Jesus, the Son of God, has exclusive knowledge of the Father. The only people who truly know God are those that Jesus chooses for the privilege. No one who has denied or bypassed Jesus truly knows God. He says, then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. The light and love of God was hidden for centuries behind a dark cloud called sin. Prophets and holy men peered through the cloud. They caught glimmers of God's glory. But in Jesus, man saw God up close and personal. What prophets dreamed of, what kings craved, the disciples woke up to every single morning. Can you imagine? These 12 men didn't have any idea how blessed they truly were. Well, verse 25, and behold a certain lawyer. Once there were two lawyers. They they appeared in court. They, They had a case. Lawyer A immediately accused lawyer B of being a liar. Lawyer B called lawyer A a thief. Suddenly the judge pounded his gavel. He said to the court, now that our two attorneys have introduced themselves to each other, we can begin. Well, this lawyer, he he wasn't a legal attorney. What he was was an expert in the Jewish law, thus a lawyer. He was a theologian, would be a better word. And he came posing the ultimate question to Jesus. He stood up and tested him saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Jesus commends this lawyer's summary of the law. The whole Jewish law could be boiled down into two principles. Love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. The law put love on display. And Jesus concluded, do this and you shall live. And the man would have if there had been any love in his heart. But you see, that was his problem. The problem is that love doesn't come naturally to us. Sin and selfishness lurk in our hearts. We love supernaturally only when we've been born of God. You see, the lawyer knew the reality of his sin, especially the reluctance in his heart to put other people first. And that's why he starts looking for an excuse, a loophole to let him out of love, a way to sort of soften the demand of this command and to sort of get his heart off the hook. In verse 29, he says, but he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, well then, and who is my neighbor? You know, love isn't so hard when you can define who is and who isn't your neighbor. Well, Jesus, he answers the lawyer with a very famous story. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, 
leaving him half dead. Now the road from Jericho up to Jerusalem was a windy path that snaked its way up the mountains, way above the Kelt Gorge. On our first trip to Israel, we traveled this mountain road. In fact, there were places where the bus tires rolled within inches of the ledge that overlooked this steep ravine. Today, a superhighway has replaced the ancient path, but the original road was dangerous. And because of the twists and turns, it was a haven for road pirates. Bandits would hide along the path, and ambushes were common. You see, carjackings are no new phenomena. It happened that a certain man on this Jericho road was robbed. Bandits hit him up. They beat him within an inch of his life. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, Jesus says. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. It's interesting, the theologian that had originally asked the question, he may have been both a Levite and a priest. Both were orders of Jewish holy men. These were clergy who supposedly knew God. The problem was that their hearts were void of the love of God, like the lawyer who had asked the question. They had no compassion. They too were on their way to serve God. Love was an inconvenience to them. I like his commentary uh, by J. Vernon McGee. He points out, The reason the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side was that they saw that the man had already been robbed. Somebody else had taken his wallet. We chuckle at the callousness of the Jews, but, you know, we can be just as guilty. I'll never forget one Sunday morning my mom asked me to come and teach her Sunday school class. The subject that morning was the Good Samaritan. And I was driving to church to teach this lesson on the Good Samaritan when I bypassed this little old lady all dressed up. She was, it was obvious that she was on her way to church. She was walking. And I drove right past her so I could go down to the church and teach on the Good Samaritan. As I drove past her, the Lord pricked my heart and said, Sandy, what are you teaching on this morning? I went back and picked her up and gave her a ride to church. At times we can get so busy serving God, we miss the point of serving God. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, now you got to remember, the Jews hated these Samaritans. A good Samaritan, this was an oxymoron, sort of like 30-minute lunch hour, fresh prune, tech football. It was an oxymoron. It was a contradiction in terms. And here Jesus shows his brilliance. He attacks Jewish pride and prejudice by making the hero of the story the man the Jews hated the most. Notice the story here commends benevolence, not birthright. The Jews trusted in birthright. It singles out heart, not heritage. The Jews trusted in heritage. Here a despised Samaritan has more of the love of God in his heart than these Jewish holy men. And so he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. This story teaches many beautiful lessons. One truth, though, stands out. You can't love your brother or, for that matter, obey your God without sacrificing some time and convenience and image and money. I mean, love rolls up its sleeves. Love takes risks. Love just doesn't turn up its nose and stroll past obvious needs. Love is willing and ready to get involved. You can't pick somebody up without you getting down and dirty. 
And now Jesus asks a question of his own here in verse 36. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Wow. You see, the lawyer wanted off the hook. He had asked his question trying to justify himself, but Jesus hooks him. In light of the story, this lawyer's heart is suddenly exposed. His sin was a lack of love. What was keeping him out of heaven? What prohibited him from having eternal life? It was his lack of love. You see, his next question should have been, how do I love? And the answer would have come, follow Jesus. That would have been the answer. For only Jesus can give us a love for God and a love for our neighbor. See, here's an example of what we call pre-evangelism. Jesus never really answered the original question the man asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Apparently, the man wasn't ready for that answer. Jesus first had to create in him an awareness of his need, his lack of love in his heart. That's what the story was about. Well, verse 38 tells us, now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. As you come up the Jericho Road, up toward Jerusalem, just east of uh, the city of Jerusalem, you run into a little village. It's called Bethany. Just on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, just off the Jericho Road, which, by the way, means that the story of the Good Samaritan was even more dramatic because it was told on location, on that very road, as they made their way up to Jerusalem. Well, they come to this little village and to the house of Martha. And Martha had a sister called Mary. She also had a brother named Lazarus. But Mary was the lady who, quote, also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Now, it's not every night you have the creator of the universe over to your house for dinner. And that's why Martha wanted every aspect of the evening to be just right, especially the meal. But when she needed a little help, Mary was nowhere to be found. Mary had wandered into the living room to be with Jesus. That's when we're told in verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Apparently, Martha was confident that Jesus would set her lazy sister straight. <laughs> well, Jesus sets her straight. He answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Each year, thousands of Roman Catholics journey to the city of Rome and they cross the giant courtyard to enter St. Peter's Great Basilica. They approach the statue of St. Peter and they kiss his toe. Look closely at the statue's bronze toe and you'll see it's been rubbed down. People rubbing it, people kissing it. Over the centuries, it's been kissed by millions of pilgrims. Oh, you've got to admire the zeal of these Catholic devotees. But their affection is misplaced. They've worn out the wrong toe. Hey, love and glory and beauty and peace and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. It's not found at Peter's toe. It's found at Jesus' feet. Just ask Mary. Mary sat before Jesus. She sat at his feet. She rubbed his toe, so to speak. She spent time with Jesus. And she allowed his nature and his kindness and his goodness to rub off on her. Do you spend time with Jesus? Do you rub his toes? We need to realize the primary reason Jesus saved you and me is not so we can serve him. Did you know this? 
The primary reason Jesus died on the cross and that you were saved is not so that you could serve him. Many people think that's the reason he saved us. Not so. Angels are far more efficient servants than you and I will ever be. No, the chief reason Jesus saves us is not for our service, but for our relationship, for fellowship. He loves us. He wants us to know him. Don't get so busy serving the Lord that you fail to sit at his feet. That's the point of the story. Take some time each day to rub his toe, to get to know your Savior. Well, chapter 11 begins. Now, it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Now, it amazes me that the disciples never once asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to heal the sick. Or Lord, teach us to cast out demons. Or you know, Lord, that walking on water, we'd really like to know how to walk on water. Oh Lord, could you teach us how to turn water into wine or open blind eyes? Not once did they say those things. They never asked Jesus for a course on miracles. Here's what they requested. Lord, Teach us to pray. I think the disciples sensed that prayer was the key to Jesus' miraculous life. If they knew how to pray, they too could tap into God's incredible power. Well, he said to them, when you pray, and notice he teaches them to pray by modeling a prayer. How do you learn to pray? By hearing other people pray. By modeling the prayers of others. And Jesus gives us a model prayer. When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now here's the very first component to prayer. Adoration. Prayer should always begin with praise. We need to hallow God's name. To hallow His name is to focus on its uniqueness, its supremacy. How different God's name is from all other names. Prayer will eventually express human need, but it should always begin by exalting God's name. I love what C.S. Lewis said. The first prayer of all prayers should be, Lord, may it be the real I who prays, and may it be the real you I pray to. Hey, when I pray, it needs to be to the right God. To the almighty God, not some reduced God, reduced by my fears. I need to focus on who God truly is. Pray to the right God. And and how do we get the right God? By getting our minds focused on the greatness of God. We begin our prayer with praise. Then the second component to prayer is submission. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, the ultimate goal of prayer is not to get my will done in heaven, but it's to get God's will done on earth. Before I ever submit a request, I first need to submit my will. We need to always remember God doesn't exist for our pleasure. We exist for God's pleasure. Once I submit to what's best for His kingdom, then I can get to my request. Prayer's third component then is supplication. Adoration, submission, supplication. He says, verse 3, give us this day our daily bread. Notice our asking needs to be daily. Our daily bread. You remember every morning God sent wonder bread, that manna from heaven to the Hebrews in the wilderness? Every morning. But they could only gather one day's portion. Remember what happened if they tried to hoard the manna? It would spoil. God wanted them to trust him daily, day by day. And the same is true with us. God rarely gives us more than we need, lest we forget him. He gives us each day's portion, so we'll keep coming back day by day. Then he says, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now now this prayer is sometimes called the Lord's Prayer. But that's really a bad name. 
It's really inappropriate to call it the Lord's Prayer because this is a prayer that Jesus, our Lord, would have never prayed. Jesus would have never said, forgive us our sins, because Jesus had nothing to ask forgiveness for. Jesus had never sinned. Remember, this is the disciples' prayer. This is a model prayer, not the Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer for us. We're the ones who need to continually go to God and ask for forgiveness. Of course, this brings up an interesting question. When I'm saved, doesn't that mean that I'm forgiven of all my sin, past sin, present sin, future sin? Indeed, it does. So why do I need to continually ask for forgiveness? And the answer is an old adage. You ever heard it? Confession is good for the soul. Ever heard that? Yep. You see, I ask for God's forgiveness, not because I lack forgiveness, but I ask in order to maintain a right heart. Confession keeps me honest and humble and repentant. Confession, seeking God's forgiveness, is the antidote for my pride. And then he tells us to pray, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Earlier, Jesus encouraged us to petition God for our physical needs. But we should also present our spiritual needs to God as well. And there are two at the top of the list, direction and protection. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Ask God to keep you from falling, to steer you away from temptation. That's a constant prayer. Lord, lead me not into temptation. Keep me as far from temptation as possible. And then, Lord, deliver me from the devil and his evil schemes. Direction and protection. Whenever I run through the neighborhood, I always carry this little can of, spray can of dog repellent. Not quite sure what's in it, but it says it repels dogs. So I always keep it in my pocket, just in case... A wild dog attacks. Well, I think prayer is demon repellent. Satan is like a wild dog. Satan is on the prowl. And a prayer is like a squirt of mace right in the devil's face. It causes him to back down. That's what James tells us. James chapter 4 verse 7. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then Jesus said to them, he teaches us here about the persistence of prayer, the importance of persistence. Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Now, in Oriental culture, it was a heavy humiliation for a guest to visit, and you have nothing to feed him. Here this fellow, he he runs to his neighbor. He wakes him up from a sound sleep. He's willing to upset his neighbor in order to save face with his guest. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. Now evenings in Israel got a little chilly. In fact, your home, your stone-walled home, could get downright cold. And so in the absence of central heat, families would often pile in the same bed all together. And their body heat would generate uh, the heat that they needed to stay warm. This neighbor apparently was already comfortable. He didn't want to get out of bed and traipse through a cold house in order to fetch a loaf of bread for his friend. The toasty neighbor tells his friend, hey, come back in the morning. The bread can wait. Yet that's not the end of the story. Jesus continues, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Apparently, the guy didn't take no for an answer. He kept banging on the door until finally his reluctant friend gets up off the, out of the bed, endures the cold floors, and fetches his friend some bread. Jesus is trying to teach us the importance of persistence in our prayers. You know, I hate admitting it, but there were times as the kids were growing up that I would cave in to their persistence. It was bad parenting. I know it was. 
But I would get so pestered that I'd finally just give in. I got pestered by their persistence. Oh, daddy, please, please, daddy, please, please, pretty please, daddy, please, daddy. All right. Now here, Jesus isn't accusing God of bad parenting. And he's certainly not teaching us how to approach our neighbor. What is he doing? He's emphasizing the power of our persistence. If we persist in our prayers, God is going to respond to our, to our petition. In fact, he says in verse 9, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. The original reads, everyone who keeps on asking, receives. And he who keeps on seeking, finds. And to him who keeps on knocking, it will be opened. Again, he's emphasizing persistence. Not pray once and stop, but to continue to pray. Again, when my kids would make off-handed requests and never follow up, I would assume it really wasn't that important to them anyway. It was just a whim, and so I would dismiss it. Perhaps God assumes the same from us. But when we're persistent, God takes our prayers more seriously. Jesus continues, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now here Jesus makes it clear that God isn't some lazy neighbor who has to get badgered out of bed to answer our prayers. Oh no. God wants to meet our needs. He's like a father who loves to give good gifts to his kids. I love Isaiah 65 verse 24. There the Lord says, It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Just like a parent who enjoys giving good gifts to his son, God is anxious to answer our prayers. The persistence required in prayer doesn't overcome any reluctance on God's part. It produces a right attitude in my heart. That's what it does. The fuller rendering of this Greek word that's translated persistence in verse 8 is actually a shameless persistence. A shameless persistence. See, it's a cry born out of desperation. Have you ever asked for something to the point to where you're no longer, you want it so badly that you're no longer worried about being embarrassed by asking? Have you ever asked for something until your desperation exceeded your sophistication? When it gets to this point, this is good. It's good for you. Often when God waits to answer our prayers, what happens? He allows our need to muffle and smother our pride. That's what happens. You know, the the guy who banged on his neighbor's door was past the point of worrying about his image. His pride had been overwhelmed by his need. That's good. Sometimes God waits for that to happen in us. And that's when he answers our prayer. Well, verse 14. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. Now, this is interesting to me. Most of the time, demons cause sharp tongues and bitter words and hateful speech and diarrhea of the mouth. (laughs) I know, I've seen demons make people talk a lot. Here, a demon pushes the pause button. He mutes a person. I've met a few folks I wish this demon could have gotten a hold of and shut up, but It's another story. Jesus, though, chose to cast out this demon. And so it was, when the demon had gone out, that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. 
Beelzebub was a name the Jews used for Satan. It, caused, it's, it, it means Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub. Those who opposed Jesus couldn't deny the validity of his miracles. So what did they do? They questioned their source. They accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of the devil, not the power of God. Of course, their logic was ludicrous. Jesus goes on and he says, Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Jesus is questioning their logic here. I mean, Satan is is pretty successful, is he not? He's got most of the world wrapped in his web. Well, if Satan is, is so successful, how can he be divided? How can he be fighting against himself? There's no way that Jesus could have been in league with Satan. Jesus broke the devil's chains. Jesus' miracles were an assault on Satan. Jesus is saying, your logic doesn't make sense. And then he says in verse 19, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. There were Jewish exorcists who also cast out demons. They were considered by the Jews to be God's agents. If the Jews applied this silly logic to themselves, then they also worked for Satan. He says, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God. Now, now here's the more, uh, the more plausible explanation. I cast out demons with the finger of God, and surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here Jesus states the obvious. His power over demons and disease and even death, it was proof that God had come. It was proof that the kingdom of God was among them. I love this too, that Jesus says, I cast out demons with the finger of God. Now now certainly, Satan is a handful for the saint. On our own, we're no match for Satan. But notice, Jesus casts out demons with his little finger. He says, with the finger of God. Let me encourage you not to overestimate the devil. Jesus' power is superior So much so that he doesn't even have to ball up his fist to fight against Satan. All he has to do is is use his little pinky. He can drive out hordes of demons with just the finger of God. Well, in verse 21, Jesus gives a more logical explanation for his command over demons. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Now, Satan is the strong man. Jesus is the stronger than he. 1 John 4 verse 4 would certainly agree. There we're told, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Hey, if you play sports... It doesn't matter how strong you are or how fast you are. You quickly realize that there will always be someone a little stronger and a little faster. Same is true spiritually. As strong as Satan is, there is one stronger. Jesus can overcome Satan. Jesus can bind the strong man. He can return what Satan has stolen. And then Jesus adds in verse 23, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now remember, just two chapters earlier, Luke 9 verse 50, Jesus said, He who is not against us is for us. Now, all of a sudden, he says what seems to be the opposite. He who is not with me is against me. What gives? Well, here's a rule in Bible interpretation. To understand a text, seek the context. I once heard of a Christmas card that had a real festive picture on the front. And then Revelation 11 verse 10 was printed on the inside. 
it, re it reads, they exchanged gifts and made merry. Seems like an appropriate Christmas card. There's one problem. Revelation 11 verse 10 has nothing to do with Christmas. In the last days, the Antichrist kills God's two witnesses. Their corpses lay dead in the streets. This verse describes the world's sick reaction to it all. They all exchanged gifts and they made merry. That's a strange verse to place on a Christmas card, don't you think? <laughs> Obviously, the verse was taken, the text was taken out of context. Reminds me too of the sign we used to have hanging in our nursery over at the other church. It, it quoted 1 Corinthians 15. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It was a verse very appropriate for the nursery, but it was definitely taken out of context. Well, notice the context here in Luke. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus was forbidden sectarian division within his kingdom. In other words, just because someone isn't traveling in our particular band doesn't mean that they don't serve our Lord. In other words, the church is always bigger than any one group. And yet in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is dealing with people who are outside of his kingdom. Different context. The cause of Christ is bigger than any one group, yes. Yet make sure that that group is still part of the group that embraces Jesus as the Christ and as the Lord. He who is not with me is against me. You've got to be part of the group. He who is not against us is for us, but it's a big group. In other words, the key is context. Verse 24. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. Now, now here's a passage that explains the chronic sin of some people. Reformation without regeneration is worthless. If everyone in the world stopped sinning tonight, it wouldn't add a single person to the roles in heaven. Why? Why? Because humans don't just need to stop sinning. We need to address the reason that we sin. If we don't, we'll return to our sinning with a vengeance. Understand that? Jesus mentions a man here who gets a facelift. He cleans up his act. He reforms his wicked ways. He calls out sin and he casts away all his demons. But you see, there's a difference between turning over a new leaf and turning over to God your real self. Because this man doesn't feel the void that the demon occupied in his life with the Holy Spirit. Because he does nothing to assure a changed nature. Because he never addresses the why that he was sinning. The demon ends up just returning. But this time he comes back with all of his buddies. And the latter end of the man is worse than the first. You see, reformation is man's work. It's, it's external. It's cosmetic. Regeneration is God's work. It's internal. And it reaches to the depths of a person. You see, Christianity is more than just turning over a new leaf. It's surrendering ownership of my life to God. True Christian transformation involves more than just taking out sin. It involves taking in Christ. Letting Him replace. Let Him fill the void that Satan once occupied. You can empty yourself, but unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't have the power to live the life God's called you to live. Being a Christian is not just about improving my life or even just living my life for God. It's about swapping my life for the life of Christ, letting Him live His life in and through me. That's what Christianity is about. Well, verse 27, 
And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb who bore you and the breasts which nursed you. But he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. (laughs) To Jesus, family affiliation was always secondary to spiritual determination. The voice in the crowd praises his mom. And oh yes, Mary was blessed of God. But Jesus insists, more blessed, more Mary than Mary is the person who becomes a womb for God's word and gives birth to obedience. The person who obeys God and hears God's word and keeps it. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, and it was thickly gathered together, apparently there was a mob surrounding Jesus. He began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Remember, Jonah spent three days and nights in the belly of a fish. Jesus will spend three days and nights in the belly of the earth before his resurrection. He's saying the resurrection is the only other sign that Jesus is going to give them now. Jesus is done with signs. The masses were just ambulance chasers. They were seeking after thrills, not truth. More evidence is not what these people need. He says, The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. The Arabian queen he's talking about believed after witnessing the wisdom and wonders of the Hebrew king Solomon. These Jews had witnessed not Solomon's wonders, but the miracles of the Messiah himself, far greater wonders and wisdom. And yet they had only hardened their hearts. They received greater revelation than the queen of Sheba did. But they hardened their hearts rather than believed. Jesus leaves the mob with an ominous warning. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. He says, no one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. Jesus is talking about his ministry here. Most of what he had done was vocal and visible. His teachings, his miracles were a matter of public record. All he had done had been out in the open so everyone could see. There was no reason for anyone to have excuses. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Jesus had shined his, he had been a light on a lampstand. He had shined his light brightly. Here was the problem. It wasn't enough light, it was a bad eye. That was the problem. You see, you can have the brightest light possible, but if you've got a bad eye, if you've got a dim eye, that person won't see. You see, the problem wasn't Jesus and the light that he was shining. The problem was the prejudice of the Jews that were obscuring their own vision. That was the problem. He says, therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of darkness, having no part... If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark... The whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. You see, here's the lesson for us. Protect yourself against self-deception. Make sure your perspective is objective and unbiased. If you don't, even the truth will elude you. If you're not seeing clearly, it doesn't matter how much light you receive. You'll miss the truth. I'll never forget one, one family reunion we had. My dad, he, he mentioned to my uncle that he was growing some hot peppers out in his garden. That these were some really hot peppers. Well, my uncle, he, he was such a proud person. And, and he was bragging. 
Oh, there's no such thing as a hot pepper for my taste buds. I can, I can eat any hot pepper. Doesn't matter to me. We walked out in the garden. And my dad pulled one of those peppers off the plants and handed it to my uncle. And I'll never forget him biting into that pepper. I mean, steam was coming out that man's ears. His face was as red as a beet. There were tears trickling down his cheeks. And he never admitted that that pepper was hot. Never. He never embraced the truth. Not because it wasn't obvious. It was his pride and his prejudice that kept him from conceding and admitting to the obvious. This was the Jewish problem. Wasn't that there wasn't enough light. Wasn't that Jesus hadn't provided conclusive evidence. The reason they didn't believe The reason they didn't see was because they had a prejudiced eye. They were self-deceived. And Jesus points out the chief culprits of this self-deception, this hypocrisy. And he has a few choice words for them next. And we'll get to that next time. Father, thank you for your word tonight and for the passage of scripture we've covered. Lord, so many lessons you've turned over in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you'll you'll help us to take your word tonight and apply it to our lives. Lord, help us this week as we seek to live our lives for you, as we seek to be a witness to those around us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to shine the light. Some will see Those that have a believing eye will see. Some won't. The problem is a prejudice, a prideful eye. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to just shine the light. And I pray, Lord, that you would would bring truth to the hearts of those around us. We love you, Father, and we ask for you to continue to work in our hearts tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.